Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Get to them. Um, we wanted to start off by asking um, Dr. Vera, during the uh, crisis, which has interrupted a lot of our um, normal behaviors as residents, uh, fellows, medical students, um, you know, we were wondering if you had any advice for all these uh, people eager to learn and, and improve on their urologic skills um, to try and take advantage of, you know, maybe additional downtime or, or additional lecture series or, or whatever you think. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, first of all, you're doing it right now. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, kudos to all of you for the organizers for putting this together. And, uh, you know, it's a really a unique time and um, that to, to hear from all of these uh, docs from across the system or across the area um, to give you these lectures. So, um, you know, obviously it's, it's tough for everybody. I mean, I'm sure like most of you, we haven't really operated in the last uh, four or five weeks. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's it's hard to keep yourself motivated to keep doing something that's going to, uh, you know, help educate yourself and so forth. But, uh, you know, doing these lectures, I think this is a great time to really think about some of your academic research activities and uh, trying to get some of those things in order. I mean, um, you know, obviously, the one of the biggest barriers to doing that well is not having enough time. And right now, I, you know, some of us at least have some time, I'm sure a lot of you are, have been deployed and have been um, in various ICU and, and COVID units and everything else. And uh, certainly uh, my hat's off to all of you, put yourselves out there and uh, in situations you're not familiar with and, uh, you know, um, and, and doing the best that you can. And, uh, you know, obviously the each health system owes a debt of gratitude to all of you. So, um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, uh, taking this time to do some reading, to, to thinking about academic work, um, I'm not sure how many, uh, how much access there is to simulators and things like that, but these are the times when uh, you can really spend time. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that really helped me, at least certainly during my fellowship time, was um, to be able to, the ability to kind of look at videos and uh, really, you know, at least for minimally invasive uh, surgeries, um, to go back and, and critique myself and the videos that I was performing and, and looking at expert videos um, and really thinking about, um, you know, what's going on, writing down steps, drawing, taking notes and so forth. Uh, because a lot of that prep work time will help you, you know, in the future as you're in uh, different cases and so forth. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you so much for that. And thanks so much for being here. Sure. Um, all right. So I guess, uh, why don't we get started? And, um, you know, as you said, uh, feel free to put some questions in the chat box. And, you know, uh, Michael, if you want to just, uh, you can interrupt me in between if there's a question that comes up about something that's on the slide, or we can, you know, obviously answer some of those questions at the end. Um, so, and again, thank you for having me. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here talking to all of you. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, just kind of a risk stratified management of non-muscle bladder cancer. Uh, kind of nuts and bolts type of thing. Um, you know, uh, a lot of this is uh, I kind of modeled off of the uh, AUA guidelines and so forth uh, just to keep it uh, structured and obviously try to hit some high yield topics that will show up on in-service exams and board exams and so forth. 
let's see. So just a little outline of the talk today. We talked a little bit about epidemiology of bladder cancer in general. Um, talk a little bit about the molecular pathophysiology. We'll go through some of the ins and outs of the diagnostic testing, biomarkers, um, and really uh, the crux of this is really thinking about risk stratification. And I think that's the, uh, the key to understanding and managing uh, non-muscle bladder cancer in, a, in an organized and standard way. Uh, we'll talk about the treatment considerations for the various risk, risk groups, talk a little bit about follow-up and surveillance, and then just touch a little bit on what are some of the future directions that we're uh, going for and some of the questions that need to be answered. Um, so this is just from the uh, cancer statistics, uh, cancer.gov statistics, looking at this year's uh, cases of uh, new bladder cancer, about 81,000. Um, we'll expect about 18,000 bladder cancer related deaths. Obviously, uh, the majority of these deaths are uh, related to uh, patients who have muscle invasive or higher stage disease. Uh, but uh, as we'll touch on uh, later on, I mean, certainly patients who have non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, a percentage of those patients will be at risk for progression and eventually uh, cancer-related death. This is where bladder cancer um, sits on the, the kind of spectrum of the various cancers that are diagnosed in America. Um, and you can see that's the six most common uh, cancer diagnosed in uh, people, and I'm, I'm struck by this, um, this slide all the time when I look at, uh, if you just add up the number of prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and kidney cancer cases, as well as deaths, uh, you know, in geo-oncology, we end up taking care of a significant portion of, uh, of patients, uh, both men and women, who uh, will face uh, not only a cancer diagnosis, but potentially a cancer-related death. Um, overall, you can see on the right here that um, uh, bladder cancer represents about 5% of uh, all new cancer cases in the United States. And we look over time in terms of what's been happening with the, the incidence of bladder cancer. Uh, for many years, you know, um, the, the, the incidence rate was pretty flat in terms of the number of new cases being diagnosed. Certainly the number of deaths have been pretty flat over the years. And then Somewhere in the early 2000s, we start to see this decline um, uh, in the number of cases. And this really corresponds uh, to a decline in smoking rates, which we all know is the uh, number one risk factor for bladder cancer. And so, um, you know, we start to see a decrease in the number of patients. Now, we're not necessarily seeing the decrease in the number of deaths yet, but I would expect that this, this should lag behind um, the incident cases and, and hopefully over time, we'll start to see uh, a decrease in the, in the death rate. This is really, uh, again, flushing out in terms of the incidence and, and trends in uh, incidence and, and death rates looking at bladder cancer as compared to other cancers. Um, and on, at least on the left-hand side, again, you see that bladder cancer is definitely one of the cancers that have seen a significant decline. Obviously, lung cancer being the, the highest number uh, decline over the last uh, decade or so, and that, that really has to, again, to do with the decrease in the tobacco exposure to um, people. Um, and we see some of that, obviously, we've seen that in prostate cancer, maybe related to screening changes, uh, but bladder cancer as well. Um, and the same, re same thing on the right-hand side, we see the death rate from bladder cancer has, has declined ever so slightly over the last uh, uh, decade or so. Um, and hopefully, again, that, that number will, will increase um, in terms of the, the, you know, the decrease in number of deaths uh, over the next uh, decade coming. 
Um, and this is just looking a little more up close to that graph. And, and again, you can see right at the end of around 2000, you start to see this significant decline um, in the number of cancer, uh, cancer diagnoses, um, uh, both in men and women. Um, the other thing to notice on the left-hand side of the graph, uh, you know, men made up a much higher share of overall bladder cancer um, as compared to what we see today, where, um, you know, where it used to be a three to four, a three or four to one uh, ratio, it's now coming down to about a two to one ratio uh, in terms of uh, men and women uh, with bladder cancer. So in terms of risk factors, um, obviously tobacco exposure is the uh, number one risk factor. Somewhere between 60 to 90% of all patients either have a primary or secondary um, exposure. Uh, worldwide, it's thought that 50% of all bladder cancer, the attributable risk is tobacco exposure. Um, and there's been some very large epidemiology studies that have shown, you know, obviously a huge uh, risk, uh, increased risk in current smokers, as well as former smokers. And, you know, one of the things that we all see is that even in patients who have a relatively distant history of smoking, uh, their risk seems to be higher than the general population. And um, when you contrast that with lung cancer, generally after about 10 years, uh, the risk of lung cancer in smokers uh, after 10 years after quitting uh, starts to really decline. And by 20 years after smoking, um, the risk is almost uh, similar to the general population, certainly a general population in an urban area. Um, whereas with bladder cancer and urethral cancer in general, um, that risk, even if someone has quit smoking 20 years ago, seems to persist. Um, so, you know, there's something about the underlying changes that occur in the mucosa uh, that, you know, set the stage or set the seeds to uh, developing bladder cancers. The other big risk factor is obviously occupational exposure. Um, and uh, this is a graph that's actually in the current version of uh, Campbell's, uh, or table in current uh, Campbell's looking at uh, relative risks of various occupations. And um, again, I was struck by the fact that both uh, nurses and physicians are on this list. Um, and it's interesting to see, you know, um, in, in terms of where that exposure may occur um, in terms of increasing that risk. So, um, you know, obviously the easy ones are the tobacco and dye workers and chimney sweeps and, and so forth. But uh, there's certainly a lot of other um, uh, occupations in which exposures can occur um, and lead to bladder cancer diagnosis. So this is a pretty old slide. It goes back almost uh, 15 years um, and really just uh, in a very broad overview way, looking at the molecular and genetic pathophysiology of development of bladder cancer. And, uh, one of the common questions that always comes up on, uh, on the SASAP questions is, you know, the most common uh, chromosomal abnormality or genetic abnormality seen in bladder cancer, and that's the, the loss of uh, chromosome 9. Um, and we really think that this is an early event, um, as we see it both in non-muscle invasive and muscle invasive bladder cancer. But um, the current line of thought is that there really is this uh, dichotomy in the pathway in which uh, you see uh, the urethelium have some changes and either go down a pathway where we're really talking about lower grade and, and non-muscle invasive bladder cancer uh, that can be recurrent, obviously, but not necessarily progressive uh, versus you start to see some of these other mutations in P53, RB1 uh, that really lead to a more, more of an invasive phenotype. 
Um, and over the years, the some of these changes that are, that um, come along in the progression um, really uh, are starting to be fleshed out in terms of uh, which mutations are are driving uh, progression and, and advancement of disease. Um, ultimately, obviously, when patients develop a kind of metastasis, there's this uh, epithelial mesenchymal transformation that occurs. Um, and again, a lot of work is being done in this area, looking at some of those uh, potential changes and obviously looking for actionable targets so that uh, therapies can be developed. Um, and I put up this next uh, figure, which is from a much more recent paper um, in 2015. And again, I'm struck by the fact that it hasn't really changed all that much other than identifying some of those mutations in, in, a, in a more standardized fashion in terms of looking at the invasive versus non-invasive phenotype. Um, but really even, you know, going back 20 years, the, the same underlying theory of kind of this dichotomous pathway uh, still stands. And we, um, you know, start to see again early P53 and RB1 loss in the invasive phenotype, uh, FGFR3 in the um, non-invasive phenotype. Um, and, you know, as we understand these things, we can start to think about uh, treatments that we can uh, uh, target these areas, target these potential mutations. Um, to treat these patients. And, you know, much of targeted therapy in, in cancer biology is really aimed at um, more uh, advanced disease, metastatic patients and so forth. Um, but certainly there's an opportunity as we learn uh, more about the molecular pathophysiology that um, using some of these, uh, uh, developing some of these drugs early on in therapy um, may help uh, alleviate or ameliorate some of the invasive phenotype and uh, prevent uh, uh, more advanced disease in these patients. This is just a figure, um, again, uh, it's from the current Campbell's version, but it um, talks about the uh, uh, TCGA uh, work and um, as well as some other institutions looking at different molecular signatures. Um, and we start to see that there are really different subtypes of bladder cancer. Um, and while this, most of this work was done in muscle invasive disease, uh, I think that uh, as we gain more data, we'll, we'll start to see some of these subtypes really manifesting even in the non-muscle invasive disease. And, you know, I think this will be key for us to stratify patients even further than our current stratification schemes, um, you know, perhaps uh, identifying a subset of patients that will go on to progress to muscle invasive and advanced disease and instituting earlier cystectomy in those patients, um, you know, versus, again, developing therapies against some of these early mutations and other ch early changes, uh, and maybe uh, stop this process uh, of development of muscle-invasive disease. Um, so, you know, right now we don't have, you know, this idea of a luminal versus basal subtype in non-muscle-invasive disease, but, um, you know, I suspect that, again, as, as the data um, comes along and um, we understand this more that we will be able to subtype these uh, non-muscle-based bladder cancers um, into different groups. So let's talk about, you know, diagnosis and detection. Um, obviously, that's uh, very important in, the, in managing bladder cancer and understanding where patients are at the time they're presenting. Um, cystoscopy, as you all know, is really the mainstay of diagnosis. Um, the um, sensitivity of cystoscopy for lower urinary tract bladder cancer is approximately 90%. So 
Uh, it's very good, obviously, identifying um, papillary nodular tumors and even uh, areas of uh, carcinoma in situ. Uh, most of the guidelines, or all of the guidelines, really recommend that uh, all patients at the time of diagnosis during their initial evaluation have upper tract imaging by CT urogram or uh, MR urogram, or in, in patients who are unable, unable to have contrast, uh, doing retrograde pilograms at the time of their uh, tumor resections. Um, one of the changes that have, has occurred over the last uh, decade or so is uh, enhanced cystoscopy. Um, and enhanced cystoscopy, or blue light cystoscopy, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uh, is endorsed by both the AUA as well as the EAU guidelines. So, um, you know, I think all of the uh, major governing bodies have, have recognized the value of blue light cystoscopy and incorporated that into their recommendations um, during the evaluation and, and really treatment. So with regards to blue light cystoscopy, um, as you know, it uh, involves installation of CISVU or HEXVIX um, inside the bladder. Um, these uh, porphyrins are then taken up into the cancer cells um, and then under um, blue light uh, wavelengths, uh, they become more obvious. Now, um, I don't know how many of you have actually uh, performed cystoscopy with blue light. Um, I wish all of the pictures really looked like this in terms of the tumors really being delineated. And uh, there's certainly a, uh, I think a learning curve in um, you know, understanding what you're seeing and uh, not overcalling some areas, uh, they may look uh, abnormal. Um, but as you see in these pictures, sometimes, especially that, that you can see in that top picture, uh, the real value of, um, of blue light and CISVU is that it highlights areas that may not be as visible on white light cystoscopy. Um, now, it's not perfect. Um, in, in many of the studies, um, blue light alone can miss um, about 10% of the tumors that, that can be seen. Um, but on the other hand, white light cystoscopy is thought to miss maybe up to 30% of, of uh, satellite lesions. So, um, you know, incorporation of this really uh, helps not only from a diagnostic standpoint, but even from a treatment standpoint. And this is really um, um, backed up by data. Uh, so one of the early studies looking at CISVU, um, you know, ultimately our outcome that we're looking for is not just, you know, how well are we able to find it, uh, but how well are we able to treat it. And what blue light cystoscopy does is really help identify all of the tumor tissue um, in the bladder so that at the time of TURBT, uh, you have a more complete resection of the tumors. Um, and this translates, uh, at least in this study, up to a 12% reduction, I mean a 24% reduction in the 12-month recurrence rates. Um, as I said before, that blue light cystoscopy uh, can detect at least one additional tumor as compared to white light cystoscopy in about 30% of patients. Um, and in one particular study, um, this is a, actually a meta-analysis of a couple of different studies, uh, they actually did show a decrease in the progression rates. And, um, you know, I think this really has to do with uh, not only, um, you know, identifying all the tumors, uh, but we're potentially getting better, more complete resections of the tumors and, um, and probably more accurately risk stratifying these patients. So, um, you know, it may be that if you have an incomplete resection or you miss certain areas, uh, that you're going to be underdiagnosing some of these patients in terms of uh, missing CIS or uh, some of the invasive phenotype. And so, um, if you're able to identify those patients more accurately and then prescribe, obviously, better treatment for those patients in terms of BCG and maintenance therapy and so forth, 
um, that, that ultimately down the road has an impact on progression rates. The other area that blue light cystoscopy is used for is in terms of office cystoscopy, um, in terms of diagnostic and surveillance, um, you know, after bladder cancer diagnosis. Um, and real value here is um, more accurately defining areas that, uh, of CIS. Um, so, um, you know, uh, identifying those patients earlier in their process uh, before it becomes more diffuse throughout the bladder. So blue light cystoscopy can um, and improve uh, the diagnostic capabilities of uh, in-office cystoscopy. Um, obviously, the downside of, of, of uh, blue light cystoscopy is, is the logistics. Um, you know, patients have to come in about an hour before, have the installation put in, wait in the office, um, and then have their cystoscopy. Um, and then, unfortunately, there's also a significant cost associated with the equipment. Uh, blue light cystoscopy can't be done on any equipment. I think Storz is the only uh, system right now um, that uh, makes the tower and, and so forth. So, um, you know, there, there's an upfront cost and, and uh, getting it in the hospital is one thing, but getting it in your office or multiple offices is a, uh, it's a whole nother level of expense. So cystoscopy, obviously number one, um, part of the diagnosis and detection of uh, bladder cancer. Um, the second thing that we use is urine cytology. Um, so that's, uh, you know, those two um, together are really uh, probably the most you know, broad uh, ways that we are able to uh, diagnose and uh, maintain surveillance. Uh, cytology is much better with high-grade disease and uh, CIS, and that's really where it shows its value. Um, the sensitivity, though, is, is not great, 30%, um, maybe even up to 40%, and uh, the real value of, of cytology is specificity is that it's very high. So, you know, in patients who have a positive urine cytology, um, up to 95, 96 of those patients are going to have urethral cancer somewhere. So, you know, uh, um, we have to go looking and doing biopsies, looking at the upper urinary tracts to find this. Um, one of the important things about cytology is that it's uh, somewhat user dependent, meaning that um, you have to understand uh, what your pathologist or cytopathologist is looking at, um, and it really takes uh, discussion and integration with the cytopathology team to understand uh, what their parameters are. Um, you know, at, at least at our institution, we generally have four different results for cytology, uh, benign, uh, atypical, suspicious, and uh, positive, and that's actually evolved over time um, as, as we've, um, you know, correlated what their results are with, with biopsy findings um, and really to help them fine tune uh, their reads um, and more importantly also standardize their cytology reads across their department um, just because you want to make sure that whether it's one or another cytopathologist that's looking at the specimens that you're going to get a consistent result. So taken together cystoscopy and urine cytology uh, perform very very well. I mean uh, you know Taken together, you're talking about a greater than 90% sensitivity and specificity. Um, so uh, combined together as a diagnostic test uh, for both uh, screening as well as for surveillance, um, it, it's really uh, excellent. Um, now, a lot of work has been done to look at other urinary biomarkers um, with the idea that perhaps these biomarkers can detect uh, cancer earlier uh, perhaps have a higher, better sensitivity than cytology, um, and ultimately 
uh, we'd love to be able to have a test uh, that will help us uh, avoid cystoscopies in some of these patients who don't need it. Um, you know, just to, again, reduce the amount of invasive procedures that we're doing. So we'll go through, um, you know, some of these in more detail, but basically um, there are certain tests that look at the proteins in the urinary, uh, in the urine. Um, immunocyte is really um, uh, meant to be as an adjunct to cytology. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Eurovision FISH, which looks at uh, uh, FISH for certain genetic alterations in the cells. Um, and then there are um, some of these, these are just three, there are actually others as well um, that are relatively new. Most of them looking at various genetic uh, factors or, or parameters within the urine. Um, none of these have really um, been widely validated um, in, in, in practice to to become part of uh, routine use. So BTA stat, BTA track was the first test. Um, uh, the, the real benefit of this test is really that it's point of care. So, you know, in office, you can get a result right away. Um, and it only takes about five, 10 minutes. Again, this is looking at an antibody to a protein on the cell surface in the, in the urethial cells that are in the, uh, in the urine, that are shed in the urine. Uh, NMP22 uh, is another point of care test. Uh, it was FDA approved in 2003. Um, this is an antibody that's based, uh, it's looking at uh, nuclear matrix proteins in the urine. Um, and again, the main benefit here is really the fact that it's a point of care test. So uh, when the patients come to the office, they submit the sample and you can uh, wait a little while, but get the result while they're still in the office um, uh, about, the, about their urine. So immunocyte, as I alluded to before, uh, is uh, actually FDA approved as, as an adjunct um, to cytology. And um, although I don't think it's widely used, um, it's really beneficial in, in patients who have perhaps atypical cytologies um, to uh, uh, isolate the urethral cells um, and help the cytopathologist uh, make a more accurate diagnosis of what they're seeing. Um, you can see a picture on the uh, on the right hand side of the screen, and you know one of the things the cytopathologist looks at as a cytology specimen is clumping of the uh, urethral cells. And um, sometimes, as the cells are clumped, although they may be suspicious for uh, cancer, the, it also can sometimes inhibit the uh, or 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 um, interfere with the evaluation of the nuclear material within the cells. And so. Immunocyte helps to um, isolate those urethral cells and, and, and help cytopathologists make a more accurate diagnosis. So Eurovision, um, again, uh, is probably the most widely used uh, of all of these uh, urinary biomarker tests. Um, it's a fish-based analysis looking at uh, chromosomal abnormalities, and there are really two parts of the test, and um, either one of them being abnormal will give an abnormal, will give a quote-unquote positive test for fish. Um, so the first part of the first uh, test is actually looking at aneuploidy at three chromosomes, uh, chromosome three, chromosome seven, and chromosome 17. And you can see that in the picture on the right in the, um, in the specimen up here, you see really two copies of each, each chromosome. And that's an, obviously a normal cell uh, versus um, um, a positive test here where you see, uh, you know, the green uh, antibodies um, and you see multiple copies of that, that chromosome, and so you see aneuploidy of those cells. Um, the other one is the loss of the uh, 9P locus, and we touched on before uh, earlier that chromosome 9 loss is, is the uh, most common genetic abnormality seen in bladder cancer, 
um, and so really you're looking for loss of this locus in the um, in the uh, those cancer cells. Um, so any positive test would ha either have multiple cells with aneuploidy or um, loss of uh, chromosome nine. Um, the thing about Eurovision fish is that it is uh, uh, urine volume dependent, so uh, you need to have adequate sample so there's an adequate number of cells to be tested. Um, otherwise, you get a non-diagnostic result. In terms of some of these novel biomarkers that are out there, uh, CX bladder uh, is urine-based. Um, it uh, detects mRNA of five genes. Um, they actually have three products that they have commercially available. One is called a triage, then there's a detect and a monitor, and they're all meant to be at uh, various um, stages of, uh, of evaluation. Triage test is in really for evaluation microscopic hematuria, uh, detecting gross hematuria monitors for patients who have a known diagnosis with bladder cancer and on surveillance. Um, Euromonitor, um, I think this was uh, recently published um, as is Epicheck and uh, your monitor uses RT-PCR against uh, looking for mutations in two, two genes. One is the promoter region of TERT and the other one is mutation FGFR3. We talk about FGFR3 being a very common mutation seen in, in non-muscle-based bladder cancer. Um, and then finally Epicheck, uh, which is a urine-based assay, uh, looking at 15 DNA methylation markers. Um, so, you know, all of these have been published in, in series and um, have shown some uh, improvements in sensitivity over the standard tests. Um, none of them really approach the specificity of urine cytology, uh, but it's, uh, you know, certainly the test-based characteristics are, are improving. Um, these tests all need to be validated in larger series, you know, really used more in, in common clinical practice before um, I think they'll be ready for prime time. So with, with those standard ones that we had talked about before, you know, just looking at the test characteristics of each of those tests, um, what you can see is that all of these tests really improve on the sensitivity as, uh, of cytology, um, you know, somewhere between 70 and 85%. Uh, but unfortunately, none of them uh, approach the, the specificity uh, of cytology. Um, and so you're already talking about a very high bar um, that these tests are trying to achieve when you combine, when you compare um, cystoscopy with cytology, and you compare the the high, very high sensitivity of cystoscopy um, and then the very high specificity of cytology. Um, you know, it, it, it's a very high bar for these tests to to overcome. Um, so when you start thinking about okay, well, what are really the goals of biomarkers um, and uh, where do we stand in terms of, of um, those tests performing in, in bladder cancer? So um, first question is, you know, can you avoid cystoscopy um, using these biomarkers in, in a screening population? So patients that are coming in with hematuria. Um, and although some of these tests do have some indications for that particular um, area, uh, right now we would say no. Um, they, they really have not uh, performed well enough um, to avoid cystoscopy um, in the screening process. Uh, what about surveillance? Um, you know, can we avoid cystoscopy um, in bladder cancer patients uh, with these tests? And in general, um, and as per, you know, not just the SUO AUA guidelines, but also in the other uh, um, organization guidelines, um, no. So uh, these tests are not meant to, or are not 
uh, ready yet to um, uh, avoid cystoscopy. And meaning, and when we when we when we talk about that, what we're talking about is um, if you have a test that's normal, can you you know skip their three month or six month cystoscopy? Um, and right now, again, those tests don't have the test characteristics to to do that. Uh, what about improving detection in patients with negative or equivocal workups? So, uh, yeah, I, I think that there is um, um, some value um, in either Eurovision or Immunocyte um, in terms of um, maybe more ac uh, accurately uh, finding patients. Um, but the cost of these tests are really high, certainly compared to cytology. So, um, you know, right now, um, I wouldn't say it should be for routine use, but certainly something to consider. Um, the other issue is that because their specificity of these tests is not as high as cytology, um, you know, the question is, well, what happens when you have a positive test? Do you have to take those patients for biopsy? How often do you have to biopsy them and so forth? So um, there's certainly some increased morbidity um, that's associated with false positives. Um, and we talked about, again, the value of immunocyte in terms of clarifying atypical or suspicious psychology. Um, and then finally, what about um, identifying patients for future recurrence? Um, and can we use some of these tests to stratify patients um, based on uh, the results in terms of how often they need to be scoped um, going forward? Um, so Eurovision is the one that really um, has... Um, data, at least to support uh, using it as perhaps a stratification factor for patients. Um, and this first study uh, recently published at Southwestern. Um, it was actually a multi-institutional study. It was a prospective, non-randomized study. Uh, so about 150 patients who were in surveillance for non-muscle-based bladder cancer. Um, and what they did was they checked uh, their, the, they had a Eurovision test prior to their BCG treatment. Um, and then they checked at various time points um, right at the end of BCG at three months and six months and, and going forward. Um, and what they found was that if you, your fish test was positive at baseline, uh, that your hazard ratio for um, having a recurrence post BCG was uh, 2.6. And if your fish was positive at three months, your hazard ratio was 3.2. So, um, you know, this is, uh, this perhaps can help stratify patients in terms of how often they need to be um, cystoscoped um, going forward. And this is, again, another study um, published this year. There's really a meta-analysis of, of, of prior studies, included about 400 patients. Um, and in this particular study, they did not find um, an association with the pre-treatment fish test, uh, but did find a very strong association at that three-month test. So um, in patients who are post-BCG treatment um, and at the time of the first surveillance cystoscopy three months, if your FISH test was positive, your hazard ratio for developing a future recurrence was 3.7. So, um, and, I, and I think that there, there are still some ongoing studies looking at this particular question is that can we use a FISH, Eurovision FISH for patients um, who may have uh, intermediate or higher risk disease and stratify them and tailor their uh, surveillance or follow-up schedule based on these results. So um, when we're talking about you know, stage distribution for bladder cancer, um, roughly three quarters of all patients who show up uh, with their new diagnosis of bladder cancer will present with uh, non-muscle evasive disease. 
and about a quarter of all patients uh, at the time of presentation will have diagnosed with uh, muscle invasive or worse disease. So, um, you know, obviously this talk is really focused on those, uh, that first group of patients um, who present with non-muscle invasive disease, which represents about 75% of those patients. Um, and within that, uh, roughly a third of those patients will be T1 or CIS, and um, two thirds will be um, confined to the mucosa. So, you know, again, as we talked about earlier, I alluded to earlier that the, the key to uh, managing non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is risk stratification. And, uh, you know, my residents will tell you this is one of my favorite questions to ask uh, in the operating room in terms of, you know, where, where, do this, where does this patient fall in terms of risk and then how will we manage those patients? So understanding this slide will really uh, be the key to kind of correctly or accurately measure uh, monitoring or following uh, bladder cancer. So low risk. So these are patients who have low grade, not uh, mucosa confined or TA disease, uh, generally solitary and less than three centimeters. Intermediate risk patients are patients that have either multifocal low-grade, uh, large low-grade TA lesions, um, or kind of the isolated, smaller, high-grade TA lesion. Um, we always throw low-grade T1, um, but honestly, um, my pathologist hasn't reported the low-grade T1 um, probably in about 10 years. I don't think I've ever actually seen it in any of my patients. So um, I'm not sure this really exists um, in terms of low-grade T1 tumors. Um, and then um, early recurrences of, of low-grade TAs, kind of we bump their risk into intermediate risk. Um, in terms of high-risk patients, uh, these are patients with high-grade T1, patients who have recurrent high-grade TA, uh, patients who have very large or multifocal high-grade TA lesions, uh, CIS, variant histology, lymphovascular invasion, um, and then um, in, in, in the bottom here, the BCG unresponsive patients. And, and these are probably some of our highest risk patients. Um, now th this, this particular table here, looking at the risk stratification are the, is from the SUO AUA guidelines, um, the EAU, uh, um, the UK uh, body, the NCCN, they all have their own risk stratifications. And for the most part, they're, they're relatively uh, similar to this. Um, I think uh, some of the other guidelines bump all of the high-grade patients into high risk um, rather than separating the smaller versus the larger lesions. Um, so when we talk about risk, really what are we talking about? We're talking about risk of recurrence and risk of progression. Um, and these are relatively rough numbers in terms of uh, what is the risk of recurrence. Um, and as you can see, between low, low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk, um, there's a difference in their three and five year recurrence rates. Um, but the one down here, the, the, the second and third row, um, are really, really important ones, and that's the risk of progression. And so, you know, patients who have low risk uh, disease, their risk of progression and death from bladder cancer is, is very, very low. Um, and, uh, you know, these patients can be monitored, you know, uh, less closely than, than the higher risk patients. Um, and as we'll talk about, uh, you know, really don't need to be aggressively treated uh, versus the intermediate and high risk patients are the patients that are the higher risk for progression, um, which, uh, you know, directly correlates with uh, death and bladder cancer. So this was a paper that was just published last month. Um, looking at uh, just a validation of the current risk stratification um, that's published by the AUA. And 
Um, what you can see here on the left side is the risk of uh, recurrence. Um, and again, over five years, you can see the low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk patients. Um, you know, we said that there was a 70 to 80% risk in the high risk patients, 50 to 70% risk in the intermediate risk patients, and less than 50% risk in the uh, low risk patients is what we see here. Um, and again, the more important part of this is the risk of progression. And, you know, in these high risk patients over time, you can see really, you know, even going up to five years, the risk of progression is, is, is significant in, uh, in the patients who have high risk disease versus in the patients who have low risk disease, their risk of uh, uh, progression is extremely small. So how do we manage low-risk muscle invasive bladder cancer? Um, really uh, consider doing the intraoperative uh, or postoperative installation. Um, most of the studies have shown about a 25% to 30% risk of a decreased risk of recurrence uh, with an immediate post-op intravesical chemotherapy. Um, and most of these studies really have used mitomycin and epirubicin. Uh, there was one study that was published years ago that used gemcitabine, which actually did not show a benefit. Um, so, you know, really in our in our practice, we really use mitomycin most commonly, but epirubicin is, is used commonly as well. Um, there's one uh, study from this meta-analysis which suggested that epirubicin may be better than mitomycin. Um, it seems to be a little bit safer as well as mitomycin can be associated with a uh, kind of a severe inflammatory reaction. Um, so for low risk patients, again, just a single post-operative installation, um, the guidelines do not recommend any induction therapy, and there's really no role of uh, the urinary biomarkers in this group. So going back to risk stratification, talk about the intermediate risk. So obviously much higher risk of recurrence, higher rate of progression. Um, and so for intermediate risk patients, really, you know, we do recommend that patients undergo intravesical therapy, and then it's a six-week induction course. Um, this is a quote directly from the SUO AUA guideline that uh, with intermediate risk patients, there's really um, very little data evidence to, to show that BCG is better than mitomycin C. Um, and you know, all things considered, just because there's a higher toxicity profile with BCG, the intravesical chemotherapy might be a better first option for these intermediate risk patients. Um, consider maintenance therapy up to one year um, for patients who have a complete response. Um, and usually, for, at least in my, my practice, I, I really only consider maintenance therapy really in patients who have high-grade disease. So the multifocal low-grade TAs um, or larger low-grade lesions, I don't do any uh, maintenance therapy, um, but it's really the patients who have the high-grade lesions that, we, um, that we're focusing on. Um, and then finally, for high-risk patients, much higher rate of recurrence and progression. Um, and really, um, you know, one of the things that we have to be better at, which we, uh, you know, and, and I'm included in that, where the, the idea that we should reach UR all these patients. Um, and the reason for this is that, um, you know, in multiple trials, the original randomized trial in 2006, and then uh, meta-analysis uh, that repeat TUR, um, that you have better recurrence-free survival, um, and potentially even a better progression-free survival in these patients. And um, the idea is that you are more likely to resect residual disease. And in this uh, meta-analysis, they found up to 40 to 60% of patients um, had residual disease on repeat TUR. So um, if you're better, more complete resection, um, the better your outcomes are and less, uh, um, less recurrences after therapy. So for high-risk patients, really induction course of BCG, as well as maintenance therapy. 
Um, and the maintenance therapy is based on uh, the original SWOG trial, which goes back to uh, 2000. Um, and it's really changed the practice, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the recommendations from all the guideline committees. And this, in this study, about 600 patients uh, underwent induction BCG. They randomized 384 patients that had a complete response, so had no residual disease at their first three-month follow-up, and they were randomized to maintenance versus surveillance. So the maintenance schedule in this particular study was uh, three-week installations at three months, six months, 12, 18, up to three years. Um, and what they found was a significant difference in the recurrence-free survival, um, 60% versus 41%. And also, really, the only treatment that has really shown a benefit in terms of progression. So uh, while the absolute benefit wasn't, uh, wasn't huge, um, there was a the definite um, uh, benefit in terms of progression, so decreasing the rate of progression um, in these patients. So high-risk non-muscular cancer, BCG is really superior to intravascular chemotherapy, but really only when including maintenance therapy. So if you just compare six weeks induction BCG versus six weeks induction of intravascular chemotherapy, um, the, the benefit is, is marginal at best. Um, and you know, as we all know, there's been a supply chain problem with BCG. And uh, right now, at least there's not enough data to suggest that one strain over the other is necessarily better. So who should undergo cystectomy um, for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Um, and I think the, you know, the, the selected patients are really the patients who have the highest risk. So patients who have multifocal high-grade T1, especially associated with CIS, you know, their risk of future progression is upwards of 40 to 50%. And early cystectomy in those patients can uh, potentially uh, lead to better outcomes. Um, you know, patients who have lymphovascular invasion or variant histologies, those are also the patients that we really need to think about uh, uh, early cystectomy. Um, and then finally, patients who have BCG unresponsive disease. So patients who have had two courses of BCG or two induction courses, and then have high grade recurrences, especially within the first 12 months. Um, you know, we all are familiar with this, uh, this graph from this study back in uh, the early 90s um, from uh, Memorial, which really showed a, a marked difference in, in outcomes in patients who went early with cystectomy for non-mosivacid bladder occurrences versus delayed cystectomy. Um, in the group that you wait for muscle invasion. Um, just one quick slide about the current BCG shortage. So this was uh, some guidance that was um, provided by the SUO AUA uh, last year when uh, it was in significant shortage, which really still continues today. Um, and in their recommendations, um, you know, we talked about intermediate risk patients that should, they should have intravascular chemotherapy. Well, certainly in the area of, in the era of BCG shortage, we really should be um, doing chemotherapy in these patients. Um, prioritizing high-risk non-muscle-based bladder cancer for induction BCG. Um, and, you know, in their guidance, you know, in this era, if you're really, if your supply chain is, is disrupted and you're really short on BCG availability, you really need to prioritize this um, BCG for the naive patients and maybe holding maintenance um, for those patients. So regarding surveillance, just a couple of slides for low risk patients, you know, their, their surveillance schedule is not necessarily as intensive as the other um, intermediate or high risk patients. Um, and really after the first year, um, you can really slow down their surveillance to um, annually um, and not really any role for cytology in these low risk patients. For intermediate risk and high risk patients really in the first two years, three every three months to six months, 
in the second two years, every six to 12 months, and then annually. Um, in the high-risk patients, we really stick with every three months for the first two years and six months for the next two years. Um, and in both high-risk and intermediate-risk patients, the guidelines recommend uh, upper tract imaging at one to two-year intervals. So in terms of future questions, um, you know, obviously uh, we're looking for better urine-based biomarkers, uh, really trying to improve on the specificity um, and sensitivity and hopefully being able to stratify patients better. Um, we talked about using molecular and genetic risk stratification uh, to really further divide these patients and maybe identify patients who uh, are at higher risk for progression and, and maybe early suspecting those patients. Um, can we improve the efficacy of BCG? There are ongoing trials looking at the, the new checkpoint inhibitors in these patients. Obviously, BCG is an immunotherapy, and so um, by adding um, one of the um, uh, checkpoint inhibitors, can we improve the efficacy for BCG or even salvage some of the patients who fail with BCG? Um, optimization of intravascular chemotherapy. So this is something that's used outside of the United States quite a bit in terms of electromotive therapy um, with mitomycin. Um, Right now, unfortunately, not approved in the United States, but uh, you know, if we can uh, further optimize uh, the, the administration of intravascular therapy, uh, we can perhaps improve the response rates. And then there's still obviously a huge unmet need in the patients who fail BCG in terms of second line therapy um, and lots of trials on, ongoing um, right now in this, in this area. All right, so that was a quick overview. Um, we have a few minutes for questions. Yeah, so we got a couple questions in the chat. Um, the first one is, um, in a patient who has a history of high-grade disease with uh, multiple episodes of BCG therapy, if they have low-grade TA-like recurrences, um, how would you recommend managing them? Right, so great question and, and certainly something that comes up commonly. Um, you know, honestly, um, and this is what I tell patients is, uh, you know, don't let low grade disease get in the way of your, you know, your treatment and or, you know, uh, uh, your lifestyle, just because uh, low grade disease is not dangerous. It's uh, annoying and in their recurrences and, you know, sometimes require treatments and resections and so forth. Um, but from everything we know, low grade disease does not lead to progression. So, um, you know, honestly, um, I treat each low grade recurrence as, um, as it would as, as if they were an initial initial diagnosis. So if they're isolated, small, um, I don't do any additional treatment. Um, we don't use any BCG for these low grade patients. So I would not, you know, necessarily recommend, uh, doing additional BCG therapy. Okay. Um, and then we had a couple questions about, um, re-TUR. So mm -hmm. um, somebody was asking about your technique if, you know, when you're, you're taking a look during a re-TURBT and all you see is scar, do you just biopsy the scar? Or do you go for the margin? Um, what's generally your technique? Right. So I think both of those things, um, I don't just biopsy the scar just because, uh, you know, depending on the time between their initial resection and, and when you're doing the repeat resection, uh, there can be some underlying invasive disease, and I've seen that. So, uh, you know, I really TUR the the scar, and and then obviously, and then also TUR the um, the the margins of that. We don't have blue light cystoscopy, so I don't don't use that. But um, you know, the idea is that most of these residual tumors are really um, either deep to the initial resection or uh, really in the periphery of your resection. Mm -hmm. um, and then somebody asked about. Um, do you generally try for an aggressive deep TUR at the risk of perforation or on the initial resection? Are you going 
um, more superficial. Um, so I'm, I'm in the camp of, uh, you know, you almost have to see fat um, to have a good TUR. So I try to do as an aggressive resection the first time around. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly liberal with uh, leaving catheters in in patients after a resection. Um, you know, obviously that's the, that's the risk. If you do a deep resection, you send them home without a catheter, are they going to come back with a perforation? Um, and, you know, I, I think with some, you know, judicious use of the, of a postoperative catheter for a few days, um, I would say that the risk of somebody developing, uh, or coming back with a perforation, um, complication is, is less than 5%, probably even lower than that. So, um, I definitely, you know, feel like we should do as an aggressive a resection up front as we can. Um, as a follow-up to that, what, what about if you're thinking about using mitomycin, does that alter the math at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, mitomycin, you know, really shows its benefit uh, or in, in patients with lower risk disease. So, you know, low risk or kind of the low grade intermediate risk uh, patients. Um, and so, you know, to some degree, you know, you have to kind of tailor your, your methods to what you're looking at. But if someone has a big tumor and you're not sure whether this is uh, going to be a low grade, high grade or invasive recurrence, um, you know, I, I really err on the side of doing a more complete resection up front. Um, and, you know, if it turns out to be low grade TA and, and there isn't an invasive component, um, then so be it. But, you know, if, if you do an aggressive resection, obviously you can't necessarily give mitomycin to all those patients. Um, and in most of my practice, actually, the post-op mitomycin I use is really more in, this, in the, the follow-up. So patients who are having recurrences of, of low-grade TAs. But um, in, unless they come in with a clearly small papillary lesion at the initial diagnosis, uh, those patients might get the immediate mitomycin. But most of the patients who are coming in with larger tumors. I don't do the initial uh, intravescal mitomycin. Um, and then somebody asked about um, if the patient has more than one tumor, even if it looks, you know, very low grade, um, very small, they're intermediate risk by definition. So in that type of case, would you give intravesical chemo? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, sometimes you really, you know, you'll have maybe one, you know, one centimeter or two centimeter lesion, and then you see these small papillary changes. Um, I kind of... Uh, I guess my own bias kind of stratify those patients based on, you know, how old they are, what kind of urinary symptoms they have at baseline, and really where are the multifocality? Is it really isolated to kind of say one wall of the bladder where it's all just on the, you know, left posterior wall? Or are we talk, really talking about multiple tumors that are more diffusely around the bladder? Um, and really, you know, the, the value of intravascular therapy in those patients is really to decrease their risk of recurrence. So you're just trying to uh, avoid having them come back to go to the operating room, you know, more than they need to for another biopsy. So, you know, I think this is, and this is, I, I'm sure, um, they're different from attending to attending in terms of how aggressive they are with the intravascular therapy. I tend to be a little bit less aggressive when it terms uh, for low-grade disease. So most of the patients, um, you know, I treat more like a low-risk patient than just do um, you know, either just surveillance or the immediate post-op mitomycin. Mm -hmm. um, and then somebody asked about um, how long do you generally maintain your uh, fully catheter in place if you had an, a, a particularly aggressive TUR with um, possibly noted perforation? Um, so good question. I mean, it, it depends on, a lot of it depends on the patient. So 
um, you know, with regards to TUR, you know, what, how much of a deep resection does it, is it really broad? You know, is it, you know, a three or four centimeter area that you went deep on versus is it just one little isolated area that, that you went deep on? Um, it's different, I think, in men and women, you know, because obviously their, their voiding characteristics are different. Obviously, in a patient who has a really large prostate who already had, you know, a lot of high pressure voiding, those patients you might wait a little bit longer, three or four or five days with a catheter versus a patient who has relatively normal voiding and, or, or a female where you may just wait a couple of days. And um, does that approach alter at all if you're worried about an intraperitoneal perforation? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the intraperitoneal perforations with at, at the time of uh, resection, I think, are relatively infrequent. But yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, in a really old, an older patient with a thin bladder wall and so forth, you might just leave a catheter in. I mean, um, you know, although the upfront pain of having for the patients of having a catheter in uh, for a little bit longer um, is is you know it's there and the patients complain about it. Uh, the downside is once they, if you have a perforation, then it really becomes a, you know, a drown out longer problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would guess the answer to this question is CIS, but is there anything else that gives you a tip off to start looking for more upper tract type tumors in association with the bladder tumor? Yeah, I mean, you know, CIS obviously is, the, is, the, is probably the, no, the number one risk factor. Um, but, you know, Patients who have, you know, positive cytologies and, and not much in the bladder or just some low-grade stuff in the bladder, um, those are the patients. Um, you know, patients who have a lot of early recurrences. So, you know, I've had a few patients who've had kind of quick recurrences of low-grade disease, even though they're getting intravesical therapy and so forth. And then, you know, those are the patients you might look in the upper tract to see if there's a larger tumor there that's seeding the lower urinary tract. Mm-hmm. 